welcome to the Hockey Podcast. I am your host, Isabel Taylor, and this month I am thrilled to introduce the wonderful Jennifer Donnelly, author of Poisoned, Stepsister, and These Shallow Graves, in conversation with Erica, one of our amazing hockey ambassadors, who you can find under the name And On She Reads on WordPress, Twitter, and Instagram. We also have a spooky Halloween extract from The Twisted Tree by Rachel Berg, narrated by Kate Akello. In Poisoned, Carnegie Medal-winning Jennifer Donnelly gives another stunning feminist makeover to a traditional tale, this time turning her eye to the fairy tale of Snow White. When the huntsman carries out his orders of killing Sophie, she finds a fire burning inside of her that will not be extinguished, and sets off to reclaim what was taken from her. Here is Jennifer in conversation with Erica about Poisoned. So, hi! Hi, Erica! (laughs) It must be really exciting but really strange to be releasing a book right now it is incredibly weird i feel that you know i can't believe that i was ever complaining about newark airport i can't believe i'm saying i miss newark airport um and eating breakfast lunch and dinner in starbucks every day day after day but i do i miss it so much i'm launching a book from my dining room table um it's very strange. It's, uh, you know, it's exciting because a book launch is always exciting, but it's a little bit sad because when you're on book tour, you know, you're with your readers and you're in a room, um, usually mm. in the evening in a lovely independent bookshop in a Barnes and Noble and a Waterstones if I'm in the UK and it's people and it's that energy and it's that sort of common love of books and stories and just yeah. this ability that, you know, I don't know, gather like that. I miss it so much. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because as a reader, it's it's obviously not exactly the same, but you know, it's the same kind of vibe. You like the build up and you you watch your author that you like and a book that you're excited about, you you watch all that build up happening and you go to the events and this is exactly the same. It's it's like, oh okay, the book's out and <laughs> Yay. Yay, but, <laughs> but at the same time you, you wanna go and you want to give the author a hug and tell them yes. that you're really excited and, and that kind of social social dynamic. But one of the brilliant things about about COVID, I suppose about 2020 and what we've been thrust into is the fact that we've been able to read so many books yes and it's true and I was lucky enough to read Poisoned before it's released tomorrow so I've got some questions that I wanted to run through with you and firstly I'm just going to tell you that I love the book because oh, I, really, so I really enjoyed it it is actually the first of your books that I've ever read oh, wow. and it's it's certainly going to be one of those ones where I turn around and go, yep, going to read that next one. And I'm definitely going to read Stepsister now because having read Poisons, I definitely want to go back and read that one. Oh, thank you. It makes my day. So it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's still some long distance contact with a reader. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I know it's hey. not quite the same, but so Poisons, you describe it as a feminist retelling of the tale. And I completely agree with you. I think Sophie as a character is exactly what you want as a heroine. And she's she's definitely a badass. And the character development's great. And I completely agree with that description. So what do you see or what did you want to see as the key differences between the traditional tale and your version of the tale? That's such an excellent question. And, and just one of the... The things I was always yearning for as a kid when I first read the, you know, Snow White or probably had it read to me and then even, you know, progressed through my entire life was just had so many unanswered questions. 
and you know the story barrels along and it's such a fascinating scary uh, tale and I love it but I just wanted to know more you know especially about the evil queen as well as Snow White um even as a kid, it kind of struck me as strange that this woman who was a queen, you know, the ruler of a realm with a great burden on her shoulders and a great responsibility to bear, had nothing better to do all day than stare in a mirror. So I kind of wanted to know, you know, was she really looking in the mirror all day? Was she really, you know, this vain and asking the mirror about, you know, who's, who's better looking than I am? Or is there more to the story and more to her? And you know, it's a terrible thing she does when she, you know, orders her huntsman to to take Snow White into the woods and, and murder her to cut out her heart. And I also wanted to know what her backstory was, what made her that way. And you know, as I got a little bit older, um, it it just struck me so much that here was this powerful woman who's not allowed to be powerful. All she is is vain. All she is is concerned about rivalry. And uh, I wanted to push back on that. And I wanted to delve deep into this character, find out what made her the way she is and what is she really like? You know, perhaps she is cruel and ruthless and um, she certainly comes across that way in my story, but she's more. She's intelligent. She's shrewd. She's driven. She's um, courageous in her own way. So I wanted to bring all that out. And Snow White, um, you know, in, in my story and in the original is this very kind sort of gentle, mild person. And I wanted to delve deeper into that too. Um, And how do you survive as a person like that in that world um, and in our world uh, where kindness isn't valued and often and gentleness isn't valued. And it's just so often seen as a sign of weakness. So Mm -hmm. I sort of see these two women as opposed in a way, but with some sort of, I don't want to give too much away. There are some sort of uniting or commonalities between them at the end and sort of wanted to see how, if you are that kind, gentle, mild person, how do you survive? How do you come back? How do you push back against ruthlessness and violence and cruelty? I love that. And I, I loved that you gave more depth to the evil queen as well, because Sophie's a brilliant feminist heroine, but actually, you know, the queen is a feminist version of the queen as well, because she isn't that two-dimensional, flat, evil vein that we're sold by these traditional tales. So I think you did both of them justice. Like you say, you know, sometimes it's so flat and it was great to to see depth to them. Well, I'm very, always been fascinated by the um, fairy tale villains, Um, you know, whether it's the uh, ugly stepsisters or the wicked stepmother or the, you know, in this case, the evil queen. And I want to know why, Um, you know, where, what was the damage? What was the backstory? What happened to this person? Because whether it's an evil queen or, you know, a mean girl, the villain isn't, um, doesn't sort of just come into life that way. She isn't born that way. You know, villains are are not born, they're made. Mean girls, evil queens, all of it. And I want to know why. I want to get to the, you know, the core of that. And and I want to see, is is there a possibility for change? Um, Sophie, the main character in the story, does learn and grow. Adelaide, the evil queen, sort of comes to recognition. I'm not sure, you know, that she can grow as much as Sophie can, but there's room in both those characters. And I'm so fascinated by that. I don't, I love strong women characters, but I want to know how they got strong, you know, because often we're not born that way. And often it's, it's experience and it's letdowns and it's rejections and hard knocks that, you know, build that strength and build those muscles. So I always want to go back in the story and find out why and who made you and what happened to you. And to really see that growth, to see the characters fail, and make their mistakes and stumble. I think Sophie's, um, you know, she makes a ton of mistakes and she's a girl Mm -hmm. 
who needs saving in the beginning and, you know, progresses to a girl who does a bit of saving by the end, but um, still is a girl who makes mistakes, makes mistakes. And I think, you know, that's reflective of all of us. There isn't that sort of, I'm not aiming for perfection in my characters. I know I can't achieve that in my life. And I want to see, I want to see the mistakes and the failures that makes them very human to me. Absolutely. And it certainly makes a book more interesting as a reader you know, if you're sitting there and you've got a perfect character and they're dancing off and magically fixing everything, then what's the point in the story? Exactly. I can't relate to that. I think it's why I wrote Stepsister too, because when I was a little kid, you know, I loved Cinderella, but she was always so good and so kind. And I wasn't that way. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to share my toys. I didn't want to do my chores. And I wanted to stay in bed, just like the ugly stepsisters. And I saw, you know, a little bit more of myself in them than in Cinderella, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, no, I I can relate. I I did not want to share my toys. I was not good at sharing. My brother is six years younger than me, and he would he would swear down that I was never good at sharing. <laughs> not much has changed. I still don't share, but it, now I just don't share my gin. <laughs> so there's been a surge in the popularity of retellings in the last couple of years and which I think is brilliant because you know for the reasons we've just been discussing sometimes they are just flat and these days we we are able to give them that extra level but what I thought was really different about Poisoned and certainly made it more special was that constant prickle of fear that runs through it and you get it from all angles obviously I'm not going to give any spoilers away either you'll have to wait readers use your words carefully we'll have to wait till the recording's finished and then I'll just babble (laughs) at you for an hour so was that a conscious choice or did it just occur when as you were writing to sort of have that current of fear yeah yes I'm going to pick my words very carefully to not give too much away. As we were talking about sort of answers and why the queen behaves the way she does and what drives her, that's when, you know, fear, fear is more than a theme as a living, breathing entity sort of took over in the book. Mm, I I can't, it's so hard to talk about this without really giving the game away, but it is what's driving the queen. It's not just an amorphous, um, intangible element. It it is very real in this story. And yeah, I'm going to leave the rest to to the reader because it, it is so important. It is such a major part of the story that talking too much about it is definitely going to lead to spoilers. Absolutely. That is a very fair answer. But it's also, um, as Sophie's trying to, you know, uh, combat her her stepmother's sort of evil reign and the cruelty that she's inflicting on her realm, she's having to contend with fear as well. So it's driving both of those women in its own way. Yeah, no, that's that's a very fair answer. That was a, that was a very good answer. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Right around that. <laughs> it, was, it was a tricky question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize to readers for being so waffly. But once you get into the book, a few chapters in, you'll see why I'm being careful. (laughs) Okay, so coming back slightly to the idea of the traditional tale versus your creation, Sophie's development as a character is obviously a key part of the story. And you bring her to life wonderfully. And you know, like you were just saying, she's got flaws and she makes mistakes. And she she goes on this big development journey throughout the book. But you still manage to balance it so that it's a 
clear retelling so you've still got the the traditional elements from the story how did you achieve that balance because that strikes me as a really difficult balance to strike it is you want the story to be recognizable to readers you don't want it to be you know saying oh this is retelling of snow white and the readers can't find any of the old you know bits and pieces that they love so much and the and the symbols and the metaphors and all those elements but you also, if you are going to retell, you must bring, you know, yourself in something new and interesting and fresh. And for me, I was just um, sort of my North Star on the whole story was I want those questions answered. I want to know, you know, was the evil queen asking who's the fairest of them all? Or didn't she have something a little more weighty and important to ask her mirror, you know, being the ruler of her realm? Um, how did this young woman who was kind survive in the forest um, contend with her fear? So it's really... Um, it's just bringing yourself and, and those questions and sort of comments and emotions that that story has sparked in me ever since I was a little kid. I didn't find the queen the most frightening element of the story when I was little or the witch or the poison apple. To me, it was that mirror and the, you know, the fact that it was speaking in this, in this creepy disembodied voice and the fact even more than that, that it was the boss and it had so much authority you know, and that, and that queen um, listened to it and she gave it so much power over her. You know, why did she, why did she allow this? Why did she deal herself away? Why was, you know, the approval of the mirror so important to her? So I guess it's almost really this, this very selfish pursuit. I wanted these questions answered. I wanted to know um, what was going on in a deeper way. And I, I set off to get them. I set off to, you know, answer my own questions, basically. I love that. As someone who writes in my own time, I love that you've written this as much for yourself as you have for the readers. And that's the way to write. That's, you it know. Is. It is. And you hope some, you know, some like-minded people with maybe the same questions follow along and, and you know, are, are as enticed by the whole story and the premise as you are. You hope. We'll see. Well, I would. So <laughs> everybody will be. I'm absolutely sure of <laughs> it. Speaking for everyone, I really did, really, really did enjoy it. And this is, um, it's far from your first book, but it's your second book in the retelling genre. Right. So you've written several different genres now and for different age brackets as well. So how do you decide? Does it, is it, you know, in this case, you say that you, you wanted to answer your own questions, but wh why was now the right time to answer those questions? That's an excellent question. It's, it's partly because of my own daughter, who's now an older teenager. She's 17. Um, and watching her and her friends sort of navigate a world that I never had to navigate. You know, it was, it's never easy growing up. It's never easy growing up um, female. But uh, the pressures that social media puts on young women and men, too, to me, is crushing at times. And sort of watching her and her friends navigate and, and this, this world that is, I think, right now tyrannized by, you know, follows and likes and rates and the, the sort of comments that kids have to deal with in addition to everything else in their lives. And I wanted to give kids a way to push back at that. With Stepsister, it was very much, um, I wanted to get them the message that uh, they can define beauty on their own terms, that they don't have to listen to social media and film and magazines and all the rest of it, you know, putting this very, very narrow definition of beauty on them, that they can push back on that. That was very, very important to me that just, you know, start defining beauty on your own terms. Um, you know, why were the, why did we call the stepsisters ugly? Who gets to decide that? Who's the boss of who's pretty and who's ugly? And, and again, just coming back to, come on kids, um, 
take up this mantle yourself. Uh, you decide what's beautiful and you live your life, you know, with your own definition of beauty inside you and, and shut out that external noise. And with poison, it was this sort of metaphor, this image, this symbol uh, from the classic story all the way through to mine of the apple and, and being handed this poison apple and taking it. And, and, and we feel we have to, we have to take it. We have to take the poisonous words. We have to take the negativity, the criticism. Well, I'm here and Sophie's here to tell you that you don't, you know, you, you don't have to take that apple. You have a right to refuse it. You have a right to throw it on the ground and stamp on it. Um, so again, it's, it's very much wanting to talk to teenagers who are in such, you know, fragile, tender, formative years and hopefully trying to bolster them and strengthen them and giving them the idea that they have a right to say no. They have a right to refuse all these external cues and voices and messages they're getting. And they have a right to just be still and listen to what's inside, you know, and let that out and let that guide them. That's I'm out of breath. Brilliant. You, you go, let me get up on my soapbox, Erica. <laughs> I will never want to get off. I just feel so passionately about that. No, it's it's what's needed. I mean, my my son's 10, nearly 11. So he's 11 next month, which is terrifying. And I had him very young. So I had him at 18. And so I was going through teenagers and motherhood at the same time. Wow. And it was around then that social media started to creep in and start to be this negative force that you're talking about with who's following who is oh so-and-so's deleted me on Facebook and you know I, my likes have gone down on Instagram and that kind of thing and it, it you know I watched it have an impact on my friends and it impacts me these days and you know I'm old enough and ugly enough to say to say no but it's you know it you're you're so right I just I'm going to get up on the soapbox with you. That's it's it. Good. We'll be up there together. Yes. <laughs> and the, and the, the thing is that it's not, you know, it's not just my opinion. It's not just my feelings. You can, you know, just Google sort of suicide, depression, teenagers. And yeah. you can, these rates are spiking. And not by one or two or three percentage points, by 30%, yeah. 65%. So this, this is having, you know, a frightening, a, a terrifying effect on young people. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I completely agree. And they have to sort of, you know, I, I hate to use this militaristic language, but they have to be almost armed against it. And, and I just feel so strongly about that. No, I completely agree. And I think you really do manage to get that message across in Poisoned. By the end of the book, it's, you know, obviously no spoilers, but it very clearly sends the message of be your own person and that's okay. And that's enough. And that enough. your flaws don't define you. And all of that comes across really beautifully. Good. I'm so happy because Sophie's, you know, as I said, this kind, gentle person. And it's, it's not valued in her stepmother's core. You know, she's made to feel as a failure and as useless and as hopeless. And, and she believes, you know, what she's been told and what she mm -hmm. hears. It's reinforced by so many people. And at the end, oh, um, let's not get too carried away, but she starts to understand that, you know, what everybody says is wrong. What everybody says is a flaw is not it's her strength and, and and that's you know that's it that's the moment that that's what i live for in my characters and my stories and and hopefully in my readers you know that aha moment that click i'm okay i'm fine i'm enough you know everything that everyone says makes me wrong is what makes me right i think that's really lovely i haven't got any other words to describe that i just think that's really that's really lovely on the topic of different genres because you've written several different genres now what about your own personal reading what do you like to read and does that influence what you're then writing 
for, for me, it's, I'm just all over the place and it, it doesn't come down to genre. Um, I'll read anything as long as that voice is there and you know it, right? As a reader, you know it. It's there in that first line, practically, in the first few paragraphs, definitely in that first page. And if that voice is there and I'm just sort of, you know, have that excited feeling, um, I'll follow that writer anywhere. I'm a bit like that as well. I, I'll read, you know, a young adult book one week and then I'll be reading nonfiction Egyptology the next week. And it's like you say, as long as it's got that voice, because that's Yes, what... exactly. I couldn't take just, you know, I can't, I love kale. I couldn't eat it all the time. <laughs> I have to be all over the place. I have to have different genres, horror and historical and nonfiction and everything. <laughs> now in preparation for our interview today i did a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of stalking on your website i stalked you too <laughs> mutual stalk was it all good or did yes. we find the bad and the ugly as well <laughs> yes it was wonderful i'm in love with the little hopefully i stalked correctly the little crocheted owl and the little crocheted pink flamingo oh uh, yeah that's also you right yes that's me awesome. yeah so i make a lot of um i make a lot of crochet animals and they're dotted all around our living room um and the biggest one i've made is a giant octopus who is actually nearly six foot tall from the top of his head to the tip of his tentacles. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Are you going to put it on your Instagram? Because I would love to see it. All right, I'm digging through the Instagram feed to see photos of this. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of unflattering selfies, but there's a, there's a lot of crochet animals as well. <laughs> like the 20 foot high T-Rex. I am making a giant Loch Ness monster to go with the giant octopus at the moment. That so, is so awesome. I, I will put up a photo when he's done. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for all your time, Jennifer, because I know right now is probably busy and emotionally all over the place. And I really appreciate that you've taken this bit of time with me today just on the day before Poisoned is released to, to answer the questions. So thank you so much. It's been really lovely. It's been lovely for me, Erica. I love meeting you and I love talking books and crocheted octopi and just laughing with someone. <laughs> it's been so great. It's been a while since I really belly laughed like that. So thank you for that. Poisoned is out now in ebook, paperback and audio. If you get the chance to read it, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. This month's audio extract is The Twisted Tree by Rachel Berg. Part ghost story, part Nordic mystery, a creepy and chilling tale steeped in Norse myth. Set in the remote snows of contemporary Norway, The Twisted Tree is a ghost story that twists and never takes you quite where you're expecting. Hot Key Books presents The Twisted Tree, written by Rachel Burge and read by Kate Louise O'Callow. This book is dedicated to Odin, inspirer of poets, god of wisdom, magic and sacrifice. Martha, 24th of January. 
It started the day I fell from the tree at Mormor's cabin in Norway. The day I became blind in one eye. I'm going to write it all down here, no matter how crazy it makes me sound. If I have a daughter one day, she deserves to know the truth. The truth? Why couldn't Mum have just told me? The thought is like a knot in my brain, and the more I pick, the tighter it gets. If I had known, I could have done something, and no one would have died. If she had told me, the horror of the past few days might never have happened. My stomach shrinks to a hard ball as we pull into Heathrow. The platform's heaving with people. Holding my rucksack in front of me, I grit my teeth and push my way through the crowd. As people push past me, I get flashes of their lives, their memories and emotions. But it happens so fast I can't make sense of it. My hands are sweaty as I pull my phone from my pocket. I check the time, then wish I hadn't. Last check-in is in 15 minutes. I can't miss this flight. A train pulls into the platform opposite and dozens of passengers spill out. Worried their clothes will touch me, I veer left and head for the escalator. A man passes me, coming up the other way, and for a horrible moment I think it's Dad, but it's just some other grey businessman. Inside the departure hall, people rush around me, dragging reluctant suitcases and even more reluctant children. The noise is like a swarm of bees, all wanting to sting me. It's not just the hubbub of conversation. The air sparks and crackles. It's like their clothes know I'm here, walking among them. A wet-faced toddler wobbles in my direction, hands outstretched, closely followed by a tired-looking woman. I swerve, but not quickly enough to avoid her brushing my arm. The woman had five miscarriages before she had a daughter. She's pregnant again, but lies awake at night, terrified she might lose this baby too. My chest aches with emptiness, her loss so sharp it makes me catch my breath. I walk away, then glance back at her red coat. I've been through Mum's wardrobe enough times in the past few months to know it must be at least 50% cashmere. Wool holds a person's emotions, but cashmere is different. It makes you feel them. Spotting the familiar sign for Scandinavian Airlines, I head towards the check-in desk, then stumble over a suitcase and nearly go flying. Here, watch it! A man snaps. Sorry, I, I didn't see. Sorry, I mumble. It might help if you took off your sunglasses. I join the back of the queue, my face burning with embarrassment. Being blind in one eye messes with your depth perception. I can't work out distances. When I focus on something in the foreground, it makes stuff in the distance go blurry. It wasn't a problem at home because I know where everything is, but now, if I can't even make it across the airport without falling over, how am I going to make it to Norway? I hold the silver charm around my neck and tell myself to get it together. I've done the journey with Mum lots of times and I had no problem travelling around London by myself before the accident. I just need to focus. There are two families ahead of me. If they're quick, maybe I can still make my flight. I rummage through my bag and pull out my printed e-ticket and ferry pass to Shebna. 
You pronounce it Shebna. Heavy on the sh, which is kind of fitting, as it turns out. We used to spend every summer there. Dad, too, before he left us. But since the accident, Mum refuses to talk about the island. Or Momo, my grandma. Next customer, please. I step forward and lay my passport and e-ticket on the desk. Where are you travelling to today, miss? Buda? Well, Shebna, actually. But I have to change flights to Oslo and then get the ferry from Buda. And it's Martha Hopkins? My name, that is. My face reddens. I sound like such an idiot. As I put my rucksack on the scales, the woman behind the desk leans over and whispers to her colleague before turning back to me. I stare at my feet, convinced she can tell I'm a runaway just by looking at me. Can you remove your sunglasses, please? My voice is as shaky as my legs. Why? Is there a problem? I need to verify you're the person shown in the passport photo. She glances behind me. Travelling alone? No parent or guardian? No, but I'm 17 and your website said the picture in this passport shows a much younger child. I bite my thumbnail as she slides my passport across the desk, open at the page with my photo, as if I don't already know what it looks like. I glance at the image of the pale-faced girl with the long blonde hair and quickly look away. I hate seeing pictures of me from before. I've always been small for my age, I blurt, then instantly feel stupid. She studies the photo and I clutch my necklace. Most of the jewellery I made after the accident was rubbish, yet this piece came out perfectly. The feel of its cool edges always calms me. I love metal. It tells me nothing. I take a deep breath. Look, I'm actually late, so if you could... Take off your glasses, miss. Somebody behind me tuts. I snatch off my shades and stare at the woman. Or rather, my right eye does. My left eye is looking who knows where. Her eyes widen and flick down to my passport. Thank you. A last call was put out for your flight five minutes ago. You'll have to be quick. Gate 33. Up the escalator and to your left. I shove my glasses back on with a trembling hand and turn away but not quick enough to avoid seeing her pity smile. I don't have to touch her clothes to know what she's thinking. Her thoughts are written all over her face. Poor girl, how terrible. She'd be pretty too if it weren't for that. A patronising look, and then she moves on, anxious to lay eyes on someone who doesn't look like a freak. At the top of the escalator, I go through security, where I have to take off my sunglasses and necklace again. Thankfully, People are too busy patting their pockets for loose change that isn't there to notice my face. Once I'm through the metal detector, I snatch my stuff from the plastic tray, replace my shades and hurry to my boarding gate. An air stewardess wearing a jaunty blue hat looks at my pass and shakes her head. My heart lurches. Please, I really need to get this flight. She takes in my trainers. You can run. I grin and she ushers me onto the connecting air bridge, and we rush to the end. When we get to the plane, I put my necklace on, grateful to feel its cool silence against my skin. Everyone's seated, ready for takeoff. I walk along the aisle, searching for my place. 
boarding the plane was always the most exciting part of the journey when I was little. Now the thought of being crammed in a box with strangers makes me feel sick. I look at the people around me. A white fur coat, bristling with outrage. A chunky knit, heavy with sorrow. I can't tell what secrets they hold just by looking at them. But it's hard to stop my imagination sometimes. I find my row and my heart sinks. There's a huge man next to the aisle, and my seat's by the window. Brian, according to the stretched name on his rugby shirt, is wearing earphones, and his eyes are closed. <clears throat> Excuse me, I need to get in. No response. A flight attendant is heading this way, folding up tray tables and opening blinds with the determination of a trained assassin. I raise my voice, but Brian doesn't hear. The normal thing would be to touch his shoulder, but I don't want his rugby shirt to speak to me. Maybe I should prod his hand. In the end, I pull down his tray table, bashing it against his knee. He jumps awake and grumbles, then stands to let me pass. I smile a thank you, then stash my coat and try to make myself as small as possible. Luckily, my own clothes tell me nothing. I guess it's like the way you can't smell your own scent. My phone bleeps. A message from Mum asking if I've arrived at Dad's. I text back straight away, then turn my phone to flight mode. My parents have barely spoken since the divorce. As long as I reply, there should be no reason for her to call Dad. The plane speeds up, and I feel myself pushed back into the seat as the ground rumbles beneath me. Suddenly, Brian's elbow nudges mine. An onslaught of facts washes over me. They come so fast and hard, I can barely keep up with them. His mother would lock him in a room as a child. Some nights he dreams he's still there, crying for his mummy. My breath catches. Anger. Fear. Rejection. They come at me in waves. I flinch, then rub my head and try to make sense of the jumbled impressions in my brain. His rugby top must be made of polyester. Man-made fibres don't breathe. They throw things at you like a sobbing toddler too distraught to come up for air. The world tips away beneath me and my stomach turns. I close my eyes until I feel the plane level off. When I look out of the window, there is nothing but pale, empty blue. The light bouncing off the wing of the plane is brilliant white, too pure, almost. I close my eyes, and instantly I'm back in hospital, waking up to blackness. Just remembering the feel of the bandages on my face makes me shudder. Maybe it was a shock, but after I came round I couldn't stop shivering. Mum draped her jacket around my shoulders and then... Oh, even now I can't explain... Something wrenched apart inside of me, as if a gust of wind had banged a door open. I saw myself under the tree, my blonde hair caked with blood, and then I felt a rush of emotion, fear mixed with guilt and love, feelings that I knew weren't mine. At first, I was convinced I must have imagined it, until it happened again. After the operation, they weren't sure how much of my sight had been saved. When the doctor unfurled the bandages from my eyes, his jacket sleeve brushed my cheek. As soon as the material touched me, 
I saw an image of a bearded man in a reflection on a hearse window, his face pale and drawn. The man's father had died and left everything to his new wife. My heart twisted with jealousy. I could almost taste the bitterness he felt. The doctor removed the last of my bandages, and I blinked in disbelief. He was the man I'd seen. That night, I lay awake, terrified I was losing my mind. I told myself I must have been hallucinating, even though deep down I knew it was real. The hospital psychiatrist came to see me, concerned how I was coping with my disfigured face, but I didn't tell him anything. If he knew I can tell a person's secrets just by touching their clothes, I wouldn't be on a plane right now. I'd be listening to the ramblings of a straitjacket. Brian takes out a book and cracks open the spine. Anyone who does that is not a good person as far as I'm concerned. It's up there with cruelty to kittens and nose-picking in public. Yet I can't help feeling sorry for him. If I touched his top again, maybe I could offer him some words of comfort. Something tells me his mother couldn't help the way she was. I'm sure lots of mental illnesses went undetected in previous generations. Nowadays, she'd be given medication. Like Mum. Thinking about Mum makes my head pound. I turn my shoulder to Brian and snap the blind shut. His life is none of my business. And besides, what can I say that'll make a difference? The past will always haunt him. Pain like that stays with you. It seeps out of your pores and into the fibres of your clothes and nothing can remove the stain of a soul.